0: All right, well, if you haven't been with us, welcome. Uh, I just want to catch you up. I know even if you have been with us, it's been a while, so you've probably forgotten where we were last. In fact, I'd forgotten where we were last. I think I was out sick the last time uh, that we met before the break. And so it's been a bit since we've been on our topic. But what we've been studying for some time now are issues related to Christian leadership as men. You know, the the Scriptures call us to be leaders of our homes, uh, to be leaders in the church and leaders in the world. So we've been looking at the, the disciplines and habits, the characteristics of a godly leader. and What does it mean to have the right kind of character and what kind of attributes and disciplines do we need to have in our lives to lead our families well and to be leaders in the church. We've looked at things like Bible study, the importance of studying God's word. And you can go back on, online. We have a podcast with those recordings and you can listen to those. We looked at Bible study, we looked at prayer, we looked at scripture memory and scripture meditation. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We've also begun to look at certain characteristics or character traits that are crucial to being a godly leader. And for the last several times, we've been looking specifically at the issue of love, the characteristic of love. As you know, love in the scriptures is really an overarching characteristic, an overarching quality. That is to define every believer, but specifically as we apply this concept of leading our families and and being leaders for Christ, love is a crucial component of our leadership. In fact, not only are we to love our wives and children, that's obvious, even unbelievers understand that, but the Apostle John goes as far as to say that if we don't love the brethren, that's a sign that we may not even be in Christ. Listen to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 10 to 16. He says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was evil of the, of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. So we know we've come to, to salvation because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He goes on to continue discussing that. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ goes even one step beyond that. Not only are we called to love the brethren, as Christians, that also seems pretty obvious. But our Lord said that as As those who emulate the love of our Father, our Heavenly Father, were to even love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48 in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So obviously then, this overarching characteristic of love is not optional for us as believers. And certainly it's not optional for us in our leadership. It is to, to color the way that we treat other people, the way that we think about other people, and the way that we lead. But, of course, to cultivate genuine biblical love, it demands that we know what that is. How do we define what love is? And so this brings us back to the topic we left off with last time. We're walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're looking at the attributes of love that the Apostle Paul describes there one at a time, and applying each of those attributes to our own leadership in the different walks of life that God has given to us. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is fa- so famous. It's called the love chapter. It's probably the most famous passage on love in all of Scripture. But real quickly, before we dive into the text, let me just give you the context again of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is really a book of correction the, the theme is correction and condemnation if you remember the church in corinth was a church that was a mess uh, there were divisions in the church there was there was sexual immorality of a flagrant nature in the church that had not been addressed church discipline had not yet been practiced and and paul <coughs> time and time again corrects these believers uh, on several different matters but one of those Leading into the context of chapter 13 is the misuse of spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 deals with the fact that even if you have the greatest of spiritual gifts, and the the Corinthians were were mesmerized particularly with the miraculous gifts. And she says, you know what? Let's just step back and say, even if you have the greatest of miraculous gifts, but you fail to have the characteristic of love, then. It's worthless. It means nothing. It's a reminder that our greatest gifts are of no value to others if they're not practiced with biblical love. With that in mind, it's a short chapter, so I just want to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're focusing specifically on verses 4 to 7, but let's read the entire chapter for the sake of context. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, last time we began to look at these 16 descriptions of love that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to walk through them slowly and think of them in the different areas of leadership that God has given to us and really used it as a test for our own own lives, our own love. We've began by looking at the first six of those last time. So I'm just going to briefly mention those first six, and then we'll pick up with the seventh description this morning. Uh, And we're going to be looking at at five uh, of the descriptions today, and next time we meet, we'll finish out the list. But again, I want this to be interactive. I'll have a couple of times where I'm asking you questions that I want you to respond to that we'll discuss together. But if you have a question, um, please raise your hand. Don't, don't feel like you can't interrupt me and, because I want us to talk about these things. And at the end, I'm hoping to finish with some time left uh, in the hour for you to spend some time at your tables discussing and praying through these things uh, together. So that's the plan for this morning. But let's, let's talk about... excuse me, the first six attributes. Just very quickly, he begins, love is patient. It's patient. The word patient here means to bear up under provocation without complaint. It can also be translated as forbearing. And remember, this is based, all of these are rooted in the character of God. So this patient love is rooted in God's patience towards us. Secondly, love is kind. The word kind is to be loving or merciful. Of course, that is reflected not only in our treatment of other people, but even in the, our tone of voice, not, not just the words we choose to say, but how we choose to say them. Thirdly, we, we learned that love is not jealous. The word jealous here is to have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success so that... Rather than being grateful and rejoicing with them over what God has done or allowed in their lives, uh, we, we sinfully are jealous over those things because God has not chosen to do them to us. Fourthly, love does not brag or does not boast. That is to heap praise on oneself, is the idea there. Fifthly, love is not conceited or, or arrogant. That's to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception, to puff up, uh, to make proud. The conceited person has a wrong way of thinking about themselves. You know, the world tells us that we are to promote a high view of self. And the scripture says we're to promote a high view of Christ, right? Only when we have a high view of Christ do we see ourselves in the biblical sense that God has, has told us. And then sixthly, it says it does not act unbecomingly. That's not a, a common way that we speak. And so really what that means, the, the definition of the Greek term is it's a type of, of action that the, even the public considers a standard of, of rightness. And so to act unbecomingly is to act in a way that even the world understands uh, is, is ungodly, is unrighteous. And so love, loving toward, being loving towards another doesn't act dishonorably or or indecently towards other people those are the first six That's that we covered those in greater detail last time today i want to pick up with number seven number seven the description here and remember this is in verses four to seven in first corinthians 13 is the quality it does not seek its own there in verse five true love does not seek its own what that means is that love is not selfish but it, it desires the good of others. We think of things like Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but rather with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. But not only does this idea mean that we're not to be selfish, but it goes beyond that. It means that true love does not do good to others with ulterior motives, right? We we don't show love in order to manipulate, to get something for ourselves. You've seen that happen, right? Perhaps you've been tempted to do that before. Uh, Certainly in the world, in the workplace especially, this is a, a common tactic where a person... It's kissing up to the boss or, or whatever it is because everyone knows they want that promotion. or they, they want to be thought of well. It goes all the way back to our school days with kids in school trying to get the teacher's attention. They're, they're, they're acting loving, maybe even lavishly so. And yet it's clear that the motive for that is to get something for themselves. But let's not act like it, this can't happen to us. It, happens to, it can happen to us in every walk of life. And Paul saw this all the time. In fact, Paul, later in Philippians, I'm going to read a passage in a second. He he says he's sending Timothy, his desire is to send Timothy to the Philippians because he says, I have no one else to send to you who genuinely will love you for the sake of Christ rather than for their own benefit. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so Timothy was a man, obviously, who Paul says is characterized by this fact of genuinely loving and caring for others out of his love for Christ. This is the way that we are to think about our treatment of one another. Now with that definition in mind what I want to do is just discuss how this particular uh, attribute of loving others selfishly with ulterior motives how it can show up in the different relationships that we have so I want to talk about marriage I want to talk about our parenting and I want to talk about life in the church specifically obviously it shows up in the workplace too but for us as we think about leadership in our marriage and our parenting in the church In marriage specifically, what are some ways that we can be tempted to show love to our wives with ulterior motives seeking to get something in return? I think a silly one that comes out with us is like me asking my wife if she wants a massage. Mm-hmm. Because, but it, I mean, kind of jokingly, she knows it's because I want a massage, right? Like, right. It's, it's, like, a joke, but it's, like, it's like, hey, you want some ice cream? Yeah. You guess, go get some ice cream. Yeah, you I want to go? Is. Because I'm really wanting to, right? <laughs> yeah. But it, in reality, that's I think that applies here. Absolutely. Kind yeah. Kind of jokingly, but it's still the same. It's not yeah, it happens all the time yeah. in, in those kind of ways. That's good. What else? Thanks for breaking the ice. So I'm gonna do my hobby. Yeah. yeah. So show, show me more. more. So you do something with her, so that for her, so that she'll free you up to go do something you want to do. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Just serve her
1: beyond normal day to day stuff. Right. Uh, do things: vacuum, like clean the windows, whatever you want to do. Thinking, okay, if I do all this for her, she'll do all this for me, kind of. Yeah. You sort of reciprocate, kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, but it goes to the altruistic motive it's the heart that right. should be the exam before you start doing that kind of stuff You mm-hmm. though you want to serve her
0: yeah. and
1: your kids and grandkids and whoever else uh, but if you're down deep inside if you're wanting, well I want this so I'm going to do this to get that well, Yeah, that's not that's
0: mm-hmm. not a, a love that we want to... it's not a genuine Christ-like yeah. love right obviously we are to serve our wife sacrificially you're right it's just with the right motive right What else? What's another way it comes out in marriage? a scorecard. A A scorecard, yeah.
1: So you can say, well, here's my accomplishments. Mm And then Mm here's my expectations that we have similar accomplishments on the other side of the line. Don't Uh, do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Mr. Mr.
0: Parker's the one who taught me that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you just keep a list. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that a long time. You don't want to do that. Uh here's a good question too. How do you know after the fact that you did it with the wrong motive? What are some clues that you had the wrong motive in the, when you served your wife? The look again. She gives you the look
1: knowing
0: I know what did. Right. Yeah, she, they're usually fairly perceptive to those things. Yeah. It's like okay, what do you what do you want? You know, that's Look what, like we are with our kids, right? You're yeah. uh, angry this yeah. when you don't get <coughs> your do. Yeah, that's a big one. That's right. It's, if you wash the dishes and whatever and she doesn't say anything, no thank you, whatever, you get angry. There's a, good, there's a good indication that my motive was something else. Even if the motive is just for her to think highly of me, right? It may not be that I want anything other than her high opinion, but even still, that is a motive that's really a selfish motive. <coughs> So we have to be careful, right? True love does not seek its own. Again, who is our greatest example in this? Christ, Christ right? The, just go ahead and give the Sunday school answer. It's Christ. That's what I'm looking for, right? Christ is. Think of the way that Jesus loved us. Um, it, it's the epitome of serving with, with getting nothing in return for himself, right? he laid down entirely himself for his bride the church and that's the to be the characterization of our love for our wives you know when I was a young man and pursuing my wife and we were engaged seeking to be married I, I really wanted to be the best husband that I could be uh, and so I started reading every book I could find on marriage and at the time um, you know I, I hadn't been discipled well so the books that I was reading were in hindsight were not the best books and one of the books that I read was a book called His Needs, Her Needs. I don't know if you've ever seen that book. Don't read that book if you haven't read it. Um, but it's essentially you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, right? Or scratch her back to get her to scratch your back is really the premise of the book. It's like, you know, she's got all these needs and you just need to meet them. And if you meet them, then you've got all these needs and she meet all your needs. Well, guess how well that works, right? Also, it's an unbiblical motivation. And so... Uh, it fru- it's frustrating to me because we, we even promote some of these selfish, worldly ideas. That's, that's, that's the view of psychology, that you have these felt needs, and you just need to get your felt needs met. And once your needs are met, then you, your love tank is full, and you'll be able to love other people. The um, only problem is that's not at all the way that Christ exemplified love, right? It's, it's not with a motive to get. What about in our parenting? What are some ways that this can show up? In our parenting, of loving our kids with a motivation of self-interest.
1: can have those uh,
0: expectations. Yeah. So we love, and it's kind of uh, kind of the saying of like, how dare you do this to me as your. Mm-hmm. It's like I've loved you, I've done this, I've done that, and now you're going to respond in this way mm-hmm. instead of realizing God is the only one that can change their heart and cause them to grow in obedience. Yeah, but you hold your love
1: over them as now they owe, they owe you.
0: Right. Yeah, they owe you a debt, and are taking every act of disobedience as a personal offense instead of realizing it's first an offense against Christ. Right. Yeah. What else?
1: They're trying to get the approval of peers around you, like, "Oh, look at how loving I am to my
0: children." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. You ever lost your temper with your kids, either externally or internally, not because what they were doing was so bad, but because other people were watching and and they weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and other people were seeing it.
1: <clears throat> the for those of us in the room with adult children, mm-hmm. the uh, sometimes this is really difficult to bear out because you have to love them uh, enough to allow them to make their own choices yeah. without getting involved in those choices mm-hmm. for their life. Mm-hmm. And when you step in because you feel like you know better than they do, you don't want them to make that mistake. And that's, that's really self-serving because... Mm-hmm. Some, most of the mistakes that I made is how I learned not to make those mistakes, and yeah. choices. So it's hard mm-hmm.
0: to love them that way and let them choose for themselves right. their life path. That is tough. That's tough. It's tough not to take personal offense if they choose a different thing exactly. than, than you chose in your home with them. That's how, That's tough. You know, you ever, you ever seen parents struggle with trying to live the life they wish they had lived through their kids? Um, so I know you hate piano, but you're going to take it because I always wanted to take piano. You know, I know you're, I, my parents couldn't afford sports and I can, so you're going to play every sport every Saturday. We're going to fill our life because I love you and I'm going to give you this, and I'm like, Dad, I don't like that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Um, it would be easy to relive our, old, our high school dreams for ourselves through our kids. Um, and not that we should never push them to do something that they may not initially like. I'm not saying that. But it can really easily turn into something about me more than it is about them. What about in the church? How can we seek to manipulate others in an expression of love um, outwardly that actually is self-serving? Window. Uh,
1: what about? I, I have a friend
0: who wants to give $50,000 to the building program, but... Just give him my number. I'll talk to him. <laughs> 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 we can do this and this and this. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly.
1: This is my ideas as far as what you should do. Exactly, yeah. Well, there's strings
0: attached. No, that's that's a big one. That's, what else? <clears throat> I think just self-recognition for your... Do you want to be seen, your self-image or whatever, mm-hmm. seen as a servant-hearted yeah. member of the church or whatever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the longer it goes without someone acknowledging that, the more bitterness and discontentment can grow, which is another good sign that my motives aren't right. Alright? What else? Yes? To get, a, <clears throat> to get a better position, like if um, they're maybe going to have a position um, that maybe you could apply for, you would... Um, act more loving in order to be better considered for the position Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know we have to be really careful Um, you know James talks about not prioritizing the rich over the poor and things like there can be any number of reasons why a person wants to be the friend with this person in the church and not that because they're hoping that they'll get invited to something or be given something or it'll be helpful to be in the good graces of that person um so we have to be careful in each of these walks of life. And, and the reason why this is such a problem for us as leaders, again, comes always back to the heart of Christ. The goal is to have not just love, but Christ-like love. And remember, I read earlier from Philippians 2, 3, and 4 on the issue of selfishness. But right after that in verse 5, Paul launches into the, the illustration of why that selfish selfless love is, is so important, and it's because of Christ. He says this in Philippians 2, 5-8, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even... Death on a cross. And so the demonstration of this kind of love is motivated by the fact that it's this kind of love that Christ displayed towards us in saving us. And therefore, if we are to imitate him, it has to be love without self interest. Let's look, move on to the next characteristic here in verse 5. Not only is it a love that does not seek its own, he says it is not provoked. It is not provoked. The idea is it's not provoked to anger. The, the word itself is, is a verb that means to spur or to stir up anger. Or passively, as it is here, it is to allow yourself to be provoked to anger by others. And so when, when true love is tempted externally by another person towards anger, it refuses to take the bait. It's, it's long-suffering. Uh, It diffuses instead of increasing the tensions in a conversation. It doesn't feed the fight. Uh, Love doesn't respond harshly to harshness. It doesn't go blow for blow. I think of Proverbs 26 verse 20. It says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. That idea of for lack of wood, the fire goes out, that is, in an argument, in a dispute, it, not, if you stop throwing fuel onto the fire of the dispute, the, the dispute dies down. But instead, the temptation is a person throws a log on the fire, that is a, a jab towards you, and you throw another log right back on the fire, and here we go, having a competition. Now we have a bonfire before it's all over. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This genuine kind of love is the kind of love we have to have as believers because it's what allows us to cover the offenses of others towards us so that we respond to them in a way that honors Christ. Genuine love smothers anger instead of promoting it. And again, it is God himself who is our perfect example in this. When when God describes himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, we have God's self-revelation. And so you want to know the character of God. This is God from his own mouth describing himself. Exodus 34 verses 5 to 8 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. That's Moses. As he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord, the Lord God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worshiped. This is our God. This is the character of God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. I want you to think on this. I want you to think on God's holiness for a minute. Just think on the holiness of God. The perfect holiness of God. Spotless. No sin. No temptation towards sin, James says. Now I want you to think on the fact that God is eternal. Eternal. No beginning, no end. From eternity past, He has existed. He will exist into eternity future. And I want you to think on the fact that He's omniscient. He knows all things. And that He's perfect in His goodness. That there is no stain in His character. Now, with all of those attributes taken as a whole, the holiness of God, the eternality of God, the omniscience of God, the goodness of God, think on how offensive even the slightest hint of sin must be to his character. I mean, think about how, how intrusive it is to God, to this, this perfect, holy being. He, he's never, he never looks at sin and, and finds it even a little bit worth a laugh. He never finds it entertaining. He hates it. And yet, this one, this being says, when my people sin, when people sin against me, I'm slow to anger. I'm slow. And yet, how often are we, as sinful beings ourselves, just ready with a hair-fired trigger to respond to anybody that would dare sin against us? Right? And yet, this is our God. The one who has the right to judge sin in a moment because of His holiness he has the power to do it. He says, when I am sinned against, I'm not easily provoked. It takes God a long time to get hot. Now, make no mistake about it. He adds there at the end, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He, he has an end to his patience, and he will pour out his wrath. But it's slow. And that's convicting for us. Because, you know, we have to develop the same character traits in our own personal lives. So let's talk about that for a minute. How do we develop this character trait of responding by being slow to anger? I won't have you raise your hands, but I would assume if I did, that all of us either have at some point in our life or currently deal with a a quick trigger. That's something that every one of us has to overcome by God's grace as he sanctifies us. So how do we do that? Well, we could talk about this for hours, But as I thought about it, just to kind of give you a summary, I want to give you something that will help you meditate on the right thing. So in the moment when someone sins against you and provides a temptation to respond quickly in anger, you have the ammunition to fight against that fleshly desire. I think when we understand uh, the, the biblical perspective of every situation, it's really helpful to step back and say, how would God have me look at every person and every instance in my life? And we, we as Christians have to view every person and circumstance through the lens of God's sovereignty, through the lens of our own salvation, through the lens of the gospel, and through eternity. I want to talk about all four of those aspects. I want to talk about God's sovereignty over all things. How does meditating on God being sovereign over every instance of your life help you be slow to anger when people sin against you? Let's talk about that. How does that concept of the sovereignty of God help us be slow to anger? Well, God knows what we don't
1: know. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. you know his sovereignty is perfect knowledge. Yeah, and We don't. So person we're responding to we don't know why they're acting that way we don't know the source of their actions or words or whatever it is that would trigger our response Mm -hmm. and knowing that to the sovereignty of God should breed patience in
0: us with that person Mm -hmm. we don't know what's going on here right yeah absolutely there are there is a, a purpose that God has in his sovereignty. And there are also, a lot of times when a person is acting a certain way, it's, it's, it's revealing on outwardly heart issues that they're struggling with. Um, and so we, we, it helps us to slow down. What else? How else does the sovereignty of God help us be slow to anger? We can trust that he's going to use this interaction for our benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He has good sovereign intentions and plans for that circumstance or interaction. What else? Our circumstances are not an accident. Mm-hmm.
1: God has placed us there for a purpose mm-hmm. to really place us in situations where it's heated and it reveals what's in our heart.
0: Yeah, and That type of person interacts with us in such a way that provokes us to anger. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. You think about, I think it's important for us to test ourselves I think for, I know most of you fairly well in the room, and I, I know you would affirm that God is in fact sovereign over all things, at least theologically, you would say you believe that. But let's take that to its logical conclusion. That means if God is truly sovereign over all things, that even the slightest moments of disruption, quote unquote, to our day and plans are part of his sovereign plan for us. And so a lot of people, they justify their, their short fuse because they've legitimately been sinned against in some way. Uh, some guy comes <coughs> flying down the highway and cuts you off and mm-hmm. endangers <clears throat> the lives of you and your family, and I am justified in getting angry at that guy and yelling at him. Um, you know, that you got a new car, and you're trying to be careful, and you're driving, you're going slow, you're letting people pass by, mm-hmm. and, and sure enough, a, a car kicks up a rock, and it hits just right on your windshield, and it leaves a little crack in your windshield. Oh! Right? If we believe the sovereignty of God over all things, even this little pebble that hits the windshield is not outside of his control. If not one hair falls from our heads, if not a sparrow dies apart from his sovereign plan, then that little rock was not outside of his sovereign plan either. And so I don't know about you, but that helps me a lot to say, hang on. God God intends to use this for my spiritual benefit. If I would just slow down, and see it through the lens of his sovereignty. Let's think about the next one. What about God's gracious forgiveness of us in salvation? How does God's forgiveness of our sins and our salvation help us be slow to anger with others? Mhm. Yeah, it's crucial. What else? How else? I don't have one? a right. Say again. I don't have a right. Yeah. <clears throat> it reminds us of who, who we really are. It humbles us. <clears throat> what else? I Always thinking about that text, like as were some of you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? First Corinthians six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Yeah. How many times have have we been guilty of of getting on to our children, for example, for a real act of disobedience, a real sin, but doing it in a sinful way? I, I sometimes wonder how God must what his perspective must be of of me in those moments where I've been sinful in my correction of a sinful behavior. <laughs> Where I'm committing sometimes the same type of sin towards my child. Why would you speak to your brother that way? You know? It's like, like why would you speak to me this way? Right? <laughs> um um and so it's just it's helpful to step back and say, you know what, God has been gracious in his forgiveness of me. And so that doesn't mean that I don't have to address something, but it does change the way that I address it. What about God's commitment to our spiritual good? Romans eight, twenty-eight is a verse we quote often. And God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But how does that, and we talked a little bit about this with God's sovereignty, but how does that fact that God is not only in perfect control, but he has a good intention and plan for everything he controls, how does that affect our perspective and cause us to be slow to anger? Maybe to not get offended so quick? Yeah. It's an offense against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wait, the Lord wants to use this. The, the issue is we have to understand what spiritual good is. God cares much more about your sanctification than your promotion at work. He cares much more about your sanctification than keeping a clean car. You get, you know, all of these things. He cares more about your spiritual sanctification than your physical health. And so when, when we have these trials come into our lives, people say, why, God? Well, we don't always know all the whys, but I can guarantee you this: one of the whys is the fact that he intends to use this to make you more like Christ, mm-hmm. and that, that's helpful. Speaking
1: about the car thing, I'll give you a quick example: You know, my brother comes with visit me. Wants to drive my car. Small so side effect. Wants to go fast, <coughs> and I've got to drop him at the airport to go somewhere. He's gonna have to week.
0: And not a couple, but the boulder hits the windshield and says, "Cracks it." how am I to react to that? Yeah. He just picks it up and then,
1: calls. then doesn't call me until I get back and says, oh, by the way, yeah, I see the crappy windshield mm. crack. So yeah. how am I going to react to that? Mm. Yeah. That's example on how I, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably going to be committed to being gracious and loving to him in my response versus the,
0: Yeah.
1: what are you doing? Why don't you
0: tell me? Yeah. But it, and if we'll take a minute and just back up and look at it from a spiritual perspective, <coughs> it helps us see wait, there's more going on here. God is intending to use this to me in ways that go far beyond my car, right? Finally, thinking about God's, God's commitment to gospel advancement. Thinking, thinking through a gospel-centered lens. Um, so the guy, at, the guy at work that seems to be your nemesis or whatever it may be, how does it affect us how does it allow us to be, help us be slow to anger when we think of every situation and person through the lens of the gospel? What you got?
1: My eyes are not on myself. Mm-hmm. On him and his eternal state.
0: Yeah.
1: And my reaction is going to affect that possibly. Um I
0: feel like ambassadors for Christ and yet we show some sort of anger or reproach for another person like that um, how's it going to look when the next second we turn around and start trying to have a gospel conversation with them they're not mm-hmm. going to take you seriously at all yeah so. absolutely
1: but the, in our uh, quote woke culture hmm That that uh, wokeness often originates out of a out lostness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we're able to view it that way, yeah, then perhaps we'll not attack the woke person who's attacking us, mm-hmm. but genuinely be cons- concerned about their eternal you know, yeah. welfare. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, as, as opposed to atop- attacking their life choices.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's easy to see people of a different uh, political persuasion or who are caught up in the, the moral uh, deluge of our, of our culture to see them as, as opponents and enemies uh, to attack instead of saying, here's a gospel opportunity. This person's lost. Such were some of you, right? I, I just think thinking on those four things, the sovereignty of God over all things, his gracious forgiveness of you in Christ, God's commitment to your spiritual good, and God's commitment to the advancement of the gospel. If you can think on any one of those four or all four as a regular part of your day, it helps you just stop and take a moment before you respond in anger to say, wait a minute, there's more going on here of spiritual eternal value than just me and this person, right? And you'll share the gospel more. You'll be slower to to anger. You will grow in sanctification because you'll take that opportunity to evaluate yourself and slow down and follow Christ. It will pay great benefits. But these are the things that we must do if we are to honor Christ and to exemplify the love of Christ in the different relationships that he's given to us. So here's what I want to do. Um, we just got a few more minutes. I want to take, I'm going to pause here. We're going to pick up with doesn't keep a record of wrongs next time. But I want you just at your, at your table um, with the men that are there to take a moment and honestly confess to each other if there are uh, of these areas that we've discussed, uh, hey, pray for me particularly in this way or with this relationship. I have a real hard time with this particular person being slow to anger or being selfless in my love towards them. Express that. We can pray together. Uh, the Lord would strengthen us in that. And then uh, we'll stay, and you can fellowship, drink some coffee. We need to uh, be out of here by 730 just because there's another business that uses the other half of the building, and they'll start arriving uh, a little bit after that, so we want to free up the parking lot. But stay and hang out if you're able till 730 and fellowship. But uh, go ahead and break into small groups, talk, and pray, and then we'll fellowship.